This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Good morning. My name is Father Matt, one of the priests here. Uh, just a couple words before I pray and then before I begin my sermon. So first thing is, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. Um, so if you stick with me, and I hope you do, um, and a lot of verses and a lot of quotes and some stats. And so we'll have some of the verses on the screen just to save time flipping back and forth. And then uh, hopefully by the end of this week, I'll have, well, maybe even by Wednesday, um, have a uh, copy of this sermon with all the footnotes on it and all the verses on it. So if you're not a note taker, you want to come back and read it, you can do that and check some of the sources. You can fact check me. Um, second thing is, Father Brett said after the first sermon, he said, Matt, it was a really good sermon, but I didn't know what your big idea was. And that's like preaching 101. So I said, oh, well, my big idea is as we worship the beautiful God, he gives us a heart of love for the poor. Um, and he, as we worship him and we catch his heart, he will give us a heart for the poor. So let's pray that the Lord would help us with this. So Lord, thank you that you never ask us to do anything, that you won't give us the power to do it. Um, thank you that we're never alone and just figuring out the Christian life. We're never just cast on ourselves. We're always cast on the all-sufficient presence of Jesus, our Savior, the friend of sinners, and the power of the Holy Spirit. So give us that, that power and forgiveness right now. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So the title of my sermon is, uh, What Does It Really Mean to Be Pro-Life? And you might, uh, I, well, I admit, that's a very ambitious title um, and maybe even pretentious, pompous. Um, and you might ask, is he really going to explain that in 25 minutes um, when there's so many facets of that? And my answer to that question is no, I won't. So I'm not going to give you every facet of it. And there might be, by the time I get done, you might say, well, what about this? And what about that? And he didn't talk about this. And that's good. Um, that's fine. But the title of the sermon is getting at something that I've been sensing for the last couple years, and that is that it seems to be getting harder to talk about what it means to be pro-life. It seems to be more confusing. Um, our country needs, seems to be more divided. If there's more tension. It's just more uncomfortable. It, it, it's more partisan. It just seems tedious. And I've often felt stuck, like, what do I think about this? How do I frame this? How do I talk about this? How do I feel about this? How do I act on this? How do I live out my convictions? And I, I think there's two reasons for that. One is it just has been, is, and always will be. It can be really painful, and it can be really personal. And so let me just say from the beginning, no matter where you stand on the issue of abortion, maybe you don't even know what you're thinking and feeling. Maybe you're like half the country, you're confused. Let me just say from the beginning, we love you. No matter where you've been, what you've done, what you believe, what you believe now, what you believe tomorrow, we love you, and the church is for you in Christ Jesus. Second thing that makes it hard, so it's, it's personal, it's painful, and, and it's scary, and we feel vulnerable of putting ourselves out there. Second thing is that um, it, the ground is shifting underneath us, and, and I don't know if you've felt that since uh, the Dobbs Supreme Court decision. Actually, things have, I think, have gotten more complicated so there was a poll that was taken back in November, reported in the Wall Street Journal, where they asked people, um, do you, yes or no, do you feel like a woman has a right to have an abortion for any reason up to birth? 55% of Americans said yes. That is the highest number since ever that poll has been taken since the 1970s. And yet at the same time, 
My friends at Caring Network tell me that in August, I don't know what's happened since then, but back in August, they had more women who would have been vulnerable or abortion-minded, more women come to help to Caring Network, this Christian pro-life crisis pregnancy center. So, so you have these kind of opposite things going on. Um, the New York Times summarized this, this, this shift very well, I think, in an article. The article said, the entire dynamic of the debate has shifted. Democrats who once dreaded speaking the word abortion now are running on it, while Republicans struggled to define what exceptions they would allow. And Donald Trump now says overturning Roe was a mistake. So now, I would imagine some of you just, you're getting nervous that I'm talking about Democrats, Republicans, Trump. I'm not going to mention them again, because I don't, this morning, right now, I don't really care what they think. I want to know what the church thinks. I want to know what the church says. And I want a fresh wind of the Holy Spirit on us for our role. Who are we? What are we called to do? What are we called to think and feel? And how are we called to respond? And we need the Word of God, and we need the Holy Spirit for that, to capture that vision. And so this is a vision. I want to go into the heartbeat of this vision of a God, a beautiful God, who calls us to worship him because he's worthy of our worship. And then out of that, once we draw near to God, we catch his heart. We catch his heart for holiness. And in particular, I want to talk about we catch his heart for the poor. So there's a little Hebrew word I've been studying the last couple of weeks. It's a little Hebrew word that appears 77 times in the Old Testament. And I'm going to walk you through these words because this word, I think, unlocks a beautiful picture of how we respond to the needs of the, the poor and, and in this particular instance, the unborn and often their mothers and fathers. It's a tiny Hebrew word called ani. It's three letters, A-N-I. And I want to ask three questions. Who are the ani? What is this group of people? What are they like? How do you qualify to be an Ani? Second one is, is an unborn child an Ani? And his mother an Ani? And third, what do we owe the Ani? Like those who have resources, what is our calling and how do we treat them? And that's where the vision, I think, gets really beautiful, and it's also going to get really costly for us. And I do not want to beat around the bush. Like, when we move into the heart of what it means to be pro-life, it will cost us. We will bear a cost for this if we're truly pro-life. So, who are the Ani? Well, you, you saw the Ani in, in Psalm 72, one of the 77 references. Three, so this Psalm 72 is talking about this messianic king, the greatest Jewish king, better than any Jewish king, almost too good to be true, the ideal Jewish king. Well, who is he? Well, it could be a conglomerate of Jewish kings, but it also, for us as Christians, we are reading this as this is Messiah. This is too good to be true. This is no human king. This is a king we worship. We bow down. Every knee will bow down. Every tongue will confess that this king is Lord. And, and what is he like? What does he do? Well, three times we see in this psalm that this king cares about the poor. So verse 2, he will treat the poor with justice. Verse 4, may he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Both times, there's that word ani. Um, he will give deliverance to the children of the needy. He will crush the oppressor. And verse 12, he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. So we see a couple things here. First of all, the, the poor, this, this group of ani, they're not just... Okay, so there's, there's another kind of poor person in the Bible called the sluggard. 
We often find in Proverbs, and he or she is poor because they don't work. They're lazy. They don't want to apply themselves. The Ani are not like the sluggard. The Ani have forces set against them. They are in the grip of oppressors, it says. And so they need to be set free. They need to be liberated. They can't just pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. That is not a possibility for them, or it's highly unlikely for them. Let me give you a couple other references, so a little backstory. So this is the first time that word, that Hebrew word, occurs in the Bible, the book of Exodus. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, Ani, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, this is the Lord talking, I will hear, for I am compassionate. A couple things about that just is, is really beautiful to me. So it's such a concrete uh, picture. Here's somebody that's poor. You have money. You loan him money. Now it's cold, like last night. It's 10 below zero. And so what's he going to do? He, doesn't, he only has one coat. You give him his coat back. Maybe you can get it later. But now he's just cold, and he needs his coat. So give it back to him. That's, God says, that matters to me. What you do with this guy's coat matters to me. You need to treat him well. Now, the next time it appears is in the book of Leviticus, or one of the next times, book of Leviticus 19.10, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor, there's that word again, and for the sojourner or the refugee, those displaced by war, violence. I am the Lord your God. So a couple things there. So this is... Um, a farmer, he's got his little business, or she's got her little business. She's running the farm, and she wants to make a profit. So she gathers in as much as she can. She wants to maximize her profit. That's good. So there's nothing anti-capitalistic about this. Like, go, go make money. That's great. The Lord wants you to make money. So, but don't, like, go to the edges of your field. Don't, like, just strip it bare. Leave some around the edges. So some poor people can come, and they can pluck that. And it's sort of like sweat equity, you know? They have to harvest it themselves. It's really cool. And God set this up. And why are you supposed to do this? Well, here's the reason. Because I'm the Lord your God, and that's good enough reason. Because I'm your dad, and I told you to. And because this is what I'm like. So God never says anywhere in the Bible, you do you. God does not say that. But he does say, I'll do me, God says. I'll do me, and what I do is I show compassion to the poor. So I want you to do that too. So Psalm 25, 16 is interesting. It's a little different. So this is a prayer of David. He says, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Afflicted is that translated ani. It's just translated afflicted sometimes. So what's interesting about this is that David is not economically poor. He's the king. He's got power. He's got privileges. He's got wealth. In what sense is he ani? Well, I think this is really cool and really beautiful, actually, because it, what it's saying is that those who have resources, they are not, David's saying, I'm not above you, economically poor. In some ways, I'm just like you. There are times in my life where I also, despite all of my resources and despite my wealth, there's times when I feel weak and vulnerable and powerless. And, and you know what that's like, no matter how much money you have, if you have a child who's sick, or you have a child who's struggling, or you have an illness yourself, or you have fears about life, or what's happening in the country, or what's happening in your family, it's like you feel powerless. You're, you're on E. And so it's like, I'm not above you, but I'm walking with you. 
One more of these 77 verses, 77 references, Isaiah chapter 3. The prophets, so we find this in the prophets, the, the, the law, the, the Torah, and then the, the Psalms, Proverbs, prophets. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders of his people. And why? Well, there's a number of reasons why God enters into judgment. Idolatry. It's the three, the three big eyes, I will call them. Idolatry, immorality, and injustice. And they're all tied together in the Old Testament. And God does not separate them. They're all part of a package. So you, you can't just pick one. So they all go together. This one is about injustice. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor? So there had been injustice, there had been oppression, and God says, you're grinding the face of the poor, and they're my people, and God doesn't like it. Now, this is a major, not a minor theme throughout the Bible, so we find Jesus, Matthew 25, the least of these. It's Ani-like people. We see, in, we see it in the book of James. It's a prominent theme. How you treat the poor really matters. Um, we see it in 1 Corinthians 12, and one of the verses which is a favorite verse in our Thrive ministry, ministry to parents, uh, uh, families impacted by disabilities, 1 Corinthians 12, that the parts of the body, the body of Christ, the church, that seem to be weaker are indispensable. So the weaker members of the body are not, to be, not only not taken advantage of, we not only do not do them harm, but we positively, like, we need them. They're indispensable. We're in partnership with them. They're our teachers. We can learn from them. They're, they're, they're with us together on this Christian journey. So here's this radical vision of human worth that the, the powerless, the unseen, the unheard, they matter, they count to the living God, and he wants them to count to us. So second question, are the unborn and their mothers, do they qualify as Ani? Well, Yes, as you might expect, I would say yes. But let's not start with the Bible. Let's start with science. Let's start with basic embryology, so not a Bible verse. Let's start there. From the moment of conception through every stage of human life, there is a unique human being with a unique set, the unique DNA. So every single one of you sitting here this morning, I mean, look around, look around. Look at the person next to you, look, at, look around. So every single person, like you were once, well, before you were even a once, you were, there was a sperm and there was an egg, and they met, and you were a zygote. And then you became a fetus. And then you developed, and then your heart started beating, and then your brain started working, and then but along every step of the way, there was a single, continuous process of a human being. Then we move from science to the Bible, and I'll just give you a two-minute crash course. Genesis 1, really important foundational work for this beautiful vision of how we treat people. We're made in the image of God. So, for instance, that means that we have inherent dignity as a person. Inherent. There's nothing you have to do to earn it. So, for instance, when you drive, sometimes you go out, I go out west from Aurora, and I go out west on these rural areas, I see these big billboards, bill, billboards with a, 
a perfectly formed, like maybe six-month-old baby girl. And she's adorable, and she's cute, and she's smiling, and she's got 10 perfect fingers and 10 perfect toes, and it's like, love me, love me, love me, be pro-life. Okay, so now, I'm not making fun of that because I'm sure the people have good hearts. But that's not why we're pro-life, because the kid is perfect. We're pro-life no matter what the kid's health is like, or no matter what the kid's level of functioning is, or no matter what, uh, no matter if somebody gets old, if somebody gets enfeebled, it's, it's you inherent, have inherent worth. The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. So let me just tick off some. Psalm 139, this beautiful poetic picture of how uh, we were knit together in, in the, your mother's womb. Isaiah 44, talking about Israel, but I think it also applies to every human being. I formed you in the womb. Uh, book of Jeremiah, God tells Jeremiah the prophet, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Luke 1, Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary. The baby leapt in her womb. Galatians 1, God set me apart from my mother's womb. Get the, the, the drift? I mean, it's pretty obvious. That's why the church through the ages has almost universally said that the unborn child, the preborn child, is a member of the human family, and the church will embrace her or him as part of our family. What about the mother? Is she Ani? Well, not all women who choose abortion are poor, but a majority are either slightly above or below the poverty line. That's something for us to grapple with as the church, something for us to pay attention to, something for, to break our hearts. But even if she's not poor, she is facing an uncertain future if this was a pregnancy that she was not planning on. So, and that can be scary, and that can involve grief and fear and loss and that is real. Those feelings are real. And we need to pay attention to those. And that's why our valuable partner, thanks for the crying baby, by the way. That's great. Okay. We don't mind that. Okay. We can deal with that. That's great. Um, I just want to say. So, um, so she feels afraid. And, oh, that's why. That's where I was. Where was I? Our trusted partner, Caring Network. Um, we love working with them because they like to say, we are laser focused on the needs of the mother. Well, what about the baby? Well, yeah, of course we care about the baby, but we're laser focused on the mother. We want to listen to her. We want to respect her. We want to make her feel safe and secure. We want to empower her. We want to ensure her that she can do this and we're going to walk with her and, she's, and then she can make the decision to do the right thing. It'll be easier for her to do the right thing. So, the unborn child and the mother can qualify as Ani. Now, what do we owe the Ani? And again, there's many different kinds of people that the Bible calls poor. There can be the sojourner. There can be the, the fatherless. Um, there can be the, um, the, the refugee those in the grip of oppression or unjust systems. So what do we, in particular, what do we owe the unborn child and his or her mother? This is where it gets costly for us, 
and it should. And if it's not, then I don't think we're doing it right. So let's go back to our word study. Let's look at Exodus chapter 22. Remember that first verse? Now look at that last line again. So if you take his cloak and he's, and he's freezing to death and it's 10 below zero and you won't give it back, God says, if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Earlier in that same chapter, God says, basically, if you don't heed the cry of the poor, you're going to answer to me, and I'm not going to be happy. You don't want to deal with me. You better deal with the guy who's just got the cloak. You don't want to face me. So um, also, um, oh, that's it. So the living God hears and he sees on behalf of the poor. He is their advocate. That is so fundamental. That is one of the beautiful gifts of the Jewish people to the human race. That heightened sense, you will see that sense in, you see evidence of it, little bits and pieces of it, little foreshadowings of it in some of the legal codes of other cultures, but not like the Jewish people, not like the Old Testament, where it is so clear and so rooted in the character and nature of the triune God. So, how do we respond? Let me talk about three particular ministries of the church and of Christians. And you might be, everybody's in different seasons of life, everybody has different opportunities, everybody has different passions and callings, so you may not respond the way I respond, or the, some of the stories I'm going to tell, you may not respond that way. But the Lord will call you, as he called those disciples at the Sea of Galilee, and part of that calling will be, how am I going to serve the world around me in Jesus' name? How am I going to share the gospel in word and truth and in deed? So first, there's the ministry of hospitality. Um, here's that word again. God says, is not the fast that I choose, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor, there's Ani, into your house. This is the ministry of hospitality, and it's just giving examples of what that looks like. Now, some of you may not have a home to bring people into. Some of you, that's really hard to do. But, but as a church, as a whole, we can do some of that. Hospitality is opening your heart and your wallet, your home, your time, your schedule to walk beside people. Um, there's a law professor at Notre Dame named O. Carter Sneed, and I love this quote. He says, a pregnant woman in crisis needs networks. She needs whole networks of people who are willing to make her good their own without seeking anything from her in return. That is really beautiful. I like that. So that hospitality, making her good your own, without expecting anything from her. So the church should be saying that that starts with the father of the child. There was this national survey that was done in which they talked to women who had had abortions, and they asked them, who was the main person you talked to about your decision? Number one on the list was the father of the child. So they asked the men, they said, well, guys, why? Why didn't you, like, encourage her? Why didn't you help her? Why didn't you support her to have, to make it easy to choose life, to do the right thing? And the guys said, well, 
I wasn't ready to be a father. And the guy taking the survey said, but you're already a father. That's what you are. That's what happens. That's what you have done. You've created a child, and now you're a dad. So the question is, what kind of father will you be? That's the question to ask. Not are you ready to be a dad, but what kind of father will you be? See, the church, we call young men to that. You know, we call, we call you to that. So if you're a young man here, I just I want you to hear it. When we call you that because we believe in you and because we love you and we want God's best for you, not because we want you to fail. We want you to succeed, and we think you can. So that's the first thing. But then other people in the church can surround this woman with networks, networks of love and support, and practice radical hospitality. And that's one of the things I love the most about the baby bank that we run every Thursday night in which we have 40 to 45 women come either pregnant or have just given birth to their child, and we have, we've counted women coming from 17 different countries of origin. Um, sometimes they come all the way from Elgin, so they're driving like 40 minutes. And I'm thinking, I'm calculating the gas. It's like, is this really worth it for you? I don't ask them that, by the way, but, but it is. Because we give them supplies, diapers, wipes, formula, clothing, that helps. But I'm also convinced they come for the hospitality. They come for the friendship. They come because somebody knows their name. They come because somebody cares about them. They come because if they want it, people can pray for them. So we've prayed for Hindus. We've prayed for Muslims. We've prayed for Buddhists. We've prayed for lapsed Christians. We've prayed for committed Christians. We'll, we'll love and pray for anybody that comes through those doors. That is radical hospitality. Second is the ministry of prayer. And I see some, a dear friend of mine who has faithfully prayed outside abort, abortion clinics for years. And you might think, well, I don't know if that's very effective. I don't know if that's a very good use of our time. And I would say, yeah, but I just hear too many stories that she tells and that other people tell about women who have changed their minds because someone was standing there praying. Somebody was for them, and God was working for them through the, the, those prayers. So I would say at the very least, don't knock that. Don't knock that unless you have a better, more clearly articulated plan for how you're doing pro-life. Don't knock that. And then at the best, as a church, I think we can support that. The third is the ministry of advocacy. And here, I'm particularly mean political advocacy. And here's my point. So we're not shy about political advocacy, right? Most of us in this room wanted Roe versus Wade to fall. And we advocated for that. And we rooted for that. And we cheered for that. And we prayed for that. And we worked for that. Now, in the same way, we need to work just as hard and just as creatively in the political and legal realm to make it easier for women in difficult situations to do the right thing. We can't just do one and then drop the ball and not continue with the process. So the earlier pro-life movement in the 1970s was 
had a little clearer take on this. They believed in larger safety nets for women. So what would that mean today? That would mean things like possibly public subsidies for raising children, affordable housing, subsidizing birth. I'm not an economist. I'm not a politician. But we need Christians, we need pro-life Christians to go into economics, to go into politics, to go into welfare reform, to go into creating affordable housing. Again, to make it easier for women to do the right thing. We may disagree, like, that won't work. That didn't work. We tried that to alleviate policy. That's not a good policy. Fine. Let's debate it. But let's be committed to it. Um, back up to let's, the, uh, the verse, uh, Proverbs 31. Yeah, I skipped that one. Proverbs 31. This is advocacy. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of those who are destitute. Open your mouth. Judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. I don't know how we can do that just interpersonally, one-on-one. -on -one. This will require some type of political and legal commitment and will and creativity on our part as Christians. So, and how we do that will differ. To be pro-life is costly. So, we always need to ask the question, when it comes to abortion, who bears the cost? Who should bear the cost? Some people say, well, the child has to bear the cost, the unborn child. Sorry, that's just tough. That's the way life is. It's hard, but the child has to bear the cost. Some people say, well, the woman who got pregnant, she should bear the cost. The church says, we all have a part in bearing this cost. All of us. O. Carter Sneed, again, that Notre Dame guy, he says, to be pro-life is to extend our neighbor's unconditional, self-emptying love and support from conception until natural death. That's why we have ministries like Replanted to families who have adopted. That's why we have ministries like Thrive to families that have been impacted by disabilities. Because the point is, we don't want them to have to bear the cost by themselves. What they've done is truly heroic. What they've done is truly noble. Now, we need to come around these families and support them. Let me give you one example of what this looks like in action. So three years ago, there was a res youth who was 16 years old at the time. She had a friend who was 20 years old. They were working together, and the friend tells her, um, I'm pregnant, and I'm planning to get an abortion. I want to keep the baby, but I'm going to get the abortion. And this res youth said, why? And she said, because everybody in my family, everybody in my support system, nobody's supporting me. Everybody's telling me to get an abortion. So this 16-year-old girl said, you don't have to do that. There are people who will help you. We will help you. My family will help you. My church will help you. There's things out there to get help. You don't have to do this. So that little word was a ray of hope for this 20-year-old woman. And she decided not to end her pregnancy. And this family, this young, this 16-year-old, who's now 19, and her mom and her dad really did walk beside this woman. They were the 
first ones there after she gave birth. They walked with her before the birth. They walked with her after the birth. They put on a huge baby shower during COVID. They got mountains of stuff for her. I know many of you contributed to that. As the mom of this young woman said, it was a good moment for the church. Rez, you responded in that moment. And that is something the church can do that in some ways the government cannot always do. We can respond like that with radical hospitality. Now, I said there's a cost, and as we move into this, it, and we move into this, you'll see the, the cost of, you, you know, the, the gospel reading when Jesus calls the disciples and at the Sea of Galilee, it's like they had no clue what they were getting themselves into. But they were going to pay a cost to follow Jesus. So to be truly pro-life is a cost. And what drives us to do this? Why, why would we want to do this? Like, why? Why pay the price? What drives it is at the center of our faith is what we do around the Eucharistic table, is that God loved us before the foundations of the, worth of the world. Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. He sought us when we were far from him. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. It tells us in 1 John. 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says, for Christ became poor. He became poor. He became ani. He became one of the poor ones so that you and I, through his process of the incarnation, the crucifixion, would pay the price for our sin. He became poor for us. How beautiful is that? And once that captures you, once that seizes you, once that seeks into your heart, you will say, first of all, thank you for the rest of your life. You will say, thank you. I didn't deserve this. Thank you. And for the rest of your life, you will say, here I am, Lord. Send me. Send me to where you want me to go. Give me your work to do. That's the beautiful vision that is behind and drives and underneath all of our pro-life work. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.